0: Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a second-year PhD student at Boston University in the Department of Astronomy, where I study the atmosphere of Mars and other planets.
1: I'm Melena Rice. I'm a third-year PhD student in the Yale Astronomy Department, and I study all things planets.
2: And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a second-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study different transient events through data science.
0: You're listening to Episode 12. Beyond. Our first research experiences. Now this is our first effort at a Beyond episode. If you read Astrobytes, you might notice that every now and then, it's usually on Fridays, there is a Beyond post. And it can be anything Beyond. It can be about um, the gender gap in astronomy. It can be about advice on how to do something like research experience or like a conference attendance and so on and so forth t- pertaining to book reviews and archival paper reviews and the beyond section of astrobytes has a lot of great content that we encourage you to check out and in this episode we're going to take you beyond the normal astro bites and talk about ourselves
2: <laughs> gosh Will, you're usually so restrained on telling personal stories i don't know how you'll be able to handle this episode.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So today specifically we're going to be sharing our very first research experience, talk about how we got started in those experiences, what we learned from them, and how things ended up the first time around when we were first starting off.
0: And as part of this discussion we're going to have three special space sounds, not just one, and they're going to be personal and maybe a little embarrassing. (laughs) So something to look forward to there. All right. Alex, you want to get us started by telling us about your very first research experience.
2: Yeah, I'd love to. So my very first research experience actually was in high school. So I went to a magnet high school that was called the Academy of Science in Loudoun County. And so I would go to this school every other day for math, science, and research classes. And then the other days I would have a home institution where I would take... Uh, English, French, my electives, essentially. Okay. And uh, as part of the curriculum at the Academy of Science, during our junior and senior years of high school, we each had to complete a research project. And generally, it was one research project for the entirety of the two years, which now that sounds kind of crazy to me, but uh, then two years was not enough time to do anything because (laughs) so much of it was just kind of exploration. And so at the time, I already knew that I was interested in astronomy, and the director of the Academy of Science, as it turned out, had a former student uh, who is now working at NASA Goddard. His name is Dr. Jeremy Schnittman. And so when I told him I was interested in doing something related to astronomy, he brought in Dr. Schnittman. We had a conversation about what I was interested in. We talked about what Dr. Schnittman works on, and we kind of converged uh, in that meeting to a project that I thought was cool and that he thought was somewhat feasible given my skill sets.
0: Interesting. I have a question about that. Yeah, sure. Um, did did you reach out to a lot of people or was this really personal connection the best avenue here?
2: Yeah, so as part of the program, before you start your junior year and your research project, you have to meet with the director and chat with him about what you're thinking of. And the uh, the idea, I think, is that the director would kind of envision the best way to make that happen, to make that research a reality. So in my case, I talked about mm. astronomy and he said, I know this person and I can help hook you up.
1: So was this a pretty small school then? If they were able to individually cater to everyone's like specific interests and like make sure they were fitting exactly what everyone wanted to yeah, do? Yeah,
2: yeah. It was, it was very personalized. There were, in my class, 60 students. Hmm, wow. And that was at the magnet school. At the magnet school, right. At my home school, in my class, there were 550, I think. Wow. Yeah, so it was very different.
0: Is this common for people to spend only some portion of their week at a magnet school, or is that an unusual setup?
2: I think it's an unusual setup. There's another magnet school in my area called Thomas Jefferson High School, and that one is full-time. Oh. Uh, I kind of liked the idea of going to a specific place for my my research and then coming back and doing elective things with Elective people who didn't necessarily specialize in in math and science, so that's why I kind of opted for that part time uh, schedule, and I really enjoyed it. That's very neat. Yeah, so my research project with Dr. Shemin was essentially to narrow the parameter space of exoplanets that were detectable using ground based telescopes through gravitational microlensing.
1: exoplanet Exoplanet. yeah
0: i'm surprised y'all didn't
1: react more strongly to that
0: yeah i just i just never thought of you as an exoplanet researcher my god you've
1: turned against us
0: back in the day way back in the day i was one of you (laughs) so essentially
2: this was a study into uh selection effects or basically we wanted to know how low in cadence could you go with different surveys while still being able to pick up uh, micro lensing systems of different parameters
0: can you define microlensing for us
2: right right so lensing in general is the phenomenon by which light in space is warped by gravitational attraction of an object and it's because light travels not actually in straight lines through space but along straight lines in kind of this curved geodesic so right. What that translates to is that you can see an amplification of light over time if an intermediate uh, massive source is lensing, is curving the light around it. So, if the intermediate object is a planetary system and not just a single body, then as you get alignment of the planet as well, you can get slightly more amplification of the distant light from a source. And the hope is that you would be able to detect. Uh, the different or constrain the parameters of this system by how much the light is amplified.
0: That's the micro part.
2: That's the micro part, right? Got it.
1: It's pretty amazing that your first research project was like the most non-intuitive way to for exoplanets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's pretty amazing that you were able to do that in high school because, I mean, I can't imagine even trying to wrap my head around micro lensing back then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so yeah so you bring up a good point which is that able to do research is, is a, bit, a very vague notion uh so this is something i'm sure we're going to talk about later in the episode but research is hard and it's non-linear and uh it's not obvious what the end goal is you're kind of just exploring in the dark and in my case it was a lot of exploring in the dark trying to figure out what all these concepts mean uh for for my first project actually dr schnittman uh, told me about uh, solutions to the two-dimensional uh, lens equation to create images of of this distant object around uh, a lens. And he gave me this fifth order polynomial to solve, uh, saying that if you can solve this, you will understand how the lenses of this distant object change over time. And at the time, I had very little programming experience. And so I decided I wanted to do it by hand. And Anybody who's tried to solve a <laughs> poly- polynomial by hand knows that it is uh, – for me, it was intractable. But I, at the time, had this notebook that I remember taping like four uh, printer pages together long ways.
0: Oh, my and gosh. And was just writing
2: out pages and pages of algebraic expressions.
0: Well, when, uh, you're, when you're in high school and, and just being exposed to these concepts, you probably had no real idea that that wasn't how you did it.
2: Right, right, and and so that was kind of my introduction uh, during the subsequent research meeting that maybe there's a better way to do this. And Dr. Schneeman showed me uh, kind of the ins and outs of IDL. So I started programming in IDL. Oh
0: no, I hate
2: IDL. Oh. Yeah, um, makes
1: sense because NASA, right? Exactly, yeah. right, right.
2: Ugh, uh, IDL. IDL for those listening is a programming language that is still used too much. <laughs>
0: um, by mostly people in NASA, right? Yeah. IDL is a great piece of software for when it was invented. The problem is it's closed source. It's developed by Harris Geospatial. And if if you don't like their documentation, you're, you're out of luck. You can't go on a Stack Overflow or any of these other you know, great forums or download someone's module or anything. It's really limited to what they produce and support. So that makes it really challenging to work in.
2: Right. Yeah. The other thing that I really didn't expect is that i start as i started to learn programming to to try and solve this fifth order polynomial and and gain some traction on this problem i really didn't expect how uh how unfavorably most astrophysicists look to windows machines
0: oh yeah have y'all,
2: I'm sure y'all have experienced this, but at the time I was using a Windows machine. I didn't know any differently. And so much of the software that I was trying to use was very hard to install and get the latest versions up and running or to find documentation. Uh, things are very poorly documented for Windows machines. So I just, I had a lot of trouble.
0: I have become a convert to Mac. Um, it took me a long time, but finally after undergrad, I decided for grad school, I need to get a good Mac Mac. It's cost a lot, but I love it. And it was the right choice.
1: Yeah, I insisted on getting this. This was sort of like I spent all of my high school graduation money on buying my first ever laptop. And so I was super excited to get a Mac and I've never turned back because it just it. I think functionally it's less able to do as much as like, you know, gamers don't ever use Macs because That's they're true. technically not as mm-hmm. functionally useful. But I think in terms of just ease of use and the fact that so many people use them, uh, generally it makes it a lot easier in terms of installing and just generally getting started.
2: I'm happy to say that as of right now, my Mac is in the mail being delivered to me. However, (laughs) at the time I had no idea. So anyway, that was a big struggle. Uh, And now I want to play an audio that I think uh, kind of encapsulates that research project if you all are willing to hear it.
0: Yeah, let's hear
3: it
1: you know i gotta say i was kind of expecting to hear like something that sounded like a planet lens or like something you know (laughs) that was that was really not what i expected
2: can i get can i get you all to guess what that was
0: you want us to guess hmm Oh, Lord. Should I just uh, tell you?
1: Did he get really into square dancing?
0: <laughs> you, you might think that. It, it sounds like something you would hear in a movie about pre war Eastern Europe or something. <laughs> wow. That is actually very astute. <laughs> Be-
2: <laughs> because, because, uh, the kind of grand culmination of this research project was that I. Was one of the students chosen to go present my research project uh, at what's called the International Space Olympics, and Never heard of that? It's this. It's this big competition for like high schoolers who have started on astrophysics research or space science of some sort. I presented and competed with a bunch of different uh, high school students from a bunch of different countries in Korolev, Russia, and so wow this audio that you're hearing is from the opening ceremony i dug out a video uh that somebody had posted from 2012 seven years ago during the opening ceremony of this uh this competition and it was super strange because uh we each different uh country had its representatives and they would take part in the opening ceremony and um we would each do a dance that was reflective of our country (laughs) but oh my we didn't gosh. but we didn't get to pick the dance it, it was the set of like russian uh dancers that came in and told you for your country this is your dance and so for the people from the u.s the two dances that they gave us were the twist like chubby checkers twist it's a great song and the cotton Eye joe also a great song
1: i wasn't that far off right what was you I said square dancing. So yeah, like, y'all were actually good. So
2: So in Eastern Europe we were square dancing as part of a research competition. That was that audio. Okay. That's I was gonna awesome. say,
1: like, I don't know why I thought Russian music was square dancing like I'm glad that I wasn't that far up.
2: No, it's very close on both of your counts. Anyway, that's what I got. Wow. That was my first research experience. How about you, cool. Melina?
1: Well, so my first research experience was totally different from yours. It also wasn't even close to exoplanets. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just going to be like totally other end of the field. But so I started a lot late. Well, I guess not a lot later, but a bit later in astronomy And um, that physics was probably the class that I took the least seriously in high school. It was sort of the topic where I was like, this is definitely not what I'm going to go into. I'm going to be a doctor. I was planning to be a medical doctor. Um, And so I was pre-med going into college, but I started taking this biology class that I just, like, couldn't handle. So Mm -hmm. it was called Biology 1B, and we had to learn all about, like, plants and fungus. And the whole first section was about fungus, which, first of all, I was just, (laughs) like, not into. (laughs) And then um, we had this lab that was, like, along with the main lecture class. And I just remember the first day in that lab, they, plant, they gave me this plant and they asked me all these questions on this worksheet, like, what is a gametophyte and all this stuff? And we weren't allowed to look up anything. All we had was this plant. And I was like, I, this isn't science. Like, I don't understand what's going on. This is terrible. And so I decided I could not go through with that class and therefore I could not be pre-med anymore. And so <laughs> I had this existential talk with um, a friend who actually is now a Yale PhD student, so we sort of ended up going wow. along the same path. But um, he was studying astronomy, and he convinced me to try it out. Uh, I just had, like, this late-night talk. I was like, I don't know. I always thought I was going to be a doctor. I don't know what to do. Um, and so he convinced me to try astronomy, and so I did. I started taking not the pre-med version of physics, but sort of the higher-level one for majors. Uh, which was also really scary because I didn't know any physics. Uh, (laughs) And (laughs) so I, I did that. And I also started taking our intro to astronomy class that wasn't for majors, but I was just sort of interested.
0: Did you know much about astronomy before this? Like, had you read astro books or anything like that?
1: Oh, absolutely not. We skipped it entirely in all of my classes growing up. I didn't even know the order of the planets. I knew absolutely nothing about astronomy until, like, second semester freshman year, which was when I had this existential crisis. Wow. (laughs) And so um that summer then i again still had no idea what i was doing but i had some friends who seemed to be starting to do research and it just seemed to be the thing to do everyone around me was starting to email people and try to Mm. figure out research projects um i went to uc berkeley and so it's like a really big research institute Mm. like everyone's doing research all the professors are doing research and so uh i just thought okay well everyone else is doing this so i guess it's probably something i should try out Um, and so that summer I just started emailing professors in big batches. Friends told me if you just email one professor, they probably won't even respond to you. And I thought of these people as like, oh, they're so important. They won't have the time of day for me. And so I emailed batches of like five to 10 professors at a time.
0: That's pretty common.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that is pretty common. And it's, I mean, it's a strategy that works, I guess, because I got a research position. So...
0: But this whole philosophy that that professors don't often respond to cold emails is is pretty much true in my experience as well. Yeah. And that can be really disappointing when you put your heart into an email and you're really proud of it and you just don't even get a response. Right. Right. (laughs) Because at least – for me, when I started undergrad, the
2: notion was that here are these, like, grand figures mm-hmm. discovering the mysteries of the universe, <laughs> and do they have time yeah. to, like, turn around and answer an email from somebody who has no idea what they're doing?
1: Yeah, and I mean, the first astro class that I took that was an intro class, it was taught by Alex Villapinko. Who's like on TV all the time, wow. and he's like this whole big Jeez. media deal. And so that's like what I thought of as an astro professor. It's like, oh, there's no way they have time for me. They're probably doing an interview with like BBC, whatever.
2: <laughs> At the moment you send your email.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: Right.
1: Yeah. Um, and so. I just started sending emails. And at this point, like, I didn't even really know what I wanted to study. I started double majoring in physics and astro because I was kind of nervous that astro had no career prospects, which, you know, I still don't necessarily know if that's not true. But, you know, I'm trying.
0: It's intriguing that your school had an astronomy major.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we had actually separate buildings for astronomy and physics. And so cool, uh, it was really lucky that I happened to be at a university that had a big astronomy program because I, again, had no idea that I was going to be studying this going in. Um, so that was just like a really nice stroke of luck. For it's me. Very cool. Yeah. So uh, I sent out these emails and I ended up uh, having this one. Uh, actually research scientists reach out to me. And so at Berkeley, there's this lab on the hill called the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And one of the labs that I had reached out to was studying particle physics. And so they were part of the Mu2e experiment, which was trying to study whether a muon, which is one of these particles in particle physics, could decay directly to an electron without emitting a neutrino, which is like this massless particle. Um, And so... You know, I couldn't actually even explain that to you in much more detail. That's That kind of tells you how the research project went. To. Um, but I, I started this project, and what they had me initially doing was just studying cosmic ray data that they collected on a detector chip. Um, but I was really in over my head. They were having me do all this work in C++. And I hardly knew Python at this point. Mm -hmm. I had taken like a tiny intro to Python class, but I didn't really know much about programming. And they had me trying to learn root, which is this like really complicated data analysis tool that's used by all these particle physics labs. Not to mention that I didn't know any particle physics. I only knew like elementary kinematics from intro physics. And so it was just a really hard... Uh, first research project that's
0: throwing you in the deep end right there.
1: Yeah, I was really in the deep end, and so along with all of that, also, this is particle physics, which has like the smallest percentage of women in like any Hmm. subfield of physics. Yeah. And so like nobody else in the entire group was a woman and I just felt super isolated. And so I ended up studying abroad the spring semester of my sophomore year and I just left the group and never looked back, which I feel a little bit bad about. But so I ended up going back into research into astronomy later on and I liked that a lot better. But Hmm. um, yeah, that was my intro to research. And so...
2: Do you think your experience doing particle physics research initially deterred you from doing astrophysics research later on? Or do you think it was kind of this initial thing that Mm -hmm. got the ball rolling and you were then excited to later on switch to astrophysics?
1: I think it made me a little wary of research and also like being a woman in STEM, that was the first time in my entire life that I had felt very isolated based on gender because I had never felt that before, Um, especially because pre-med it's like, I think it's pretty roughly 50-50. And so it, it was just a very different experience. Um, but I think I was excited to try something else. <laughs> <laughs> so in that way, it made me excited for And astronomy. sometimes that's what you need yeah. to do,
2: right? At least when you try something, you decide, do I like this or do I not like this? And that tells you where to go from there. Yeah. Right.
0: Very rarely is it a perfect fit on the first try. And even if it even if it were research that you enjoyed, you wouldn't have all of the capabilities of doing it. You know, you're still kind of going to flounder and figure things out and struggle. Right. So right. it's important to, to change as you grow, as you start to kind of get a handle on what you're good at and what you want to do. But yeah. I think, you know, the, the gender issues are something we should come back to in a future beyond episode because it, it, it saddens me to hear that at such a high mm-hmm. profile university, working with probably some of the smartest people, that that was a challenge for you. And, and, and that's disappointing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think especially in some very specific subfields, it's still a really, really big problem. And so
0: astronomy's made progress, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Right. Yeah.
2: I know there are several research articles that come out every now and again talking about the state of the field and uh, the state of the field with respect to gender demographics specifically. So, uh, yeah, I think it's something we should definitely talk about more. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And so this also led me into sort of an interesting experience a couple years later that is related to the sound that I wanted to share. Uh, And so this was a couple years after I had ever done any particle physics. I had left and I had gone full astro, but there was this professor who emailed around just asking if there were any undergrads who were interested in participating in this thing called the Global Science Opera. And so the idea is there's this uh, program where lots of different schools will each put together a scene that is like some sort of interpretive version of some sort of like physical phenomenon. And so that year it had been particle physics. And so it was just like a bunch of little kids like running around and like different colored shirts being like different colors of particles and like all this very, very interpretive stuff. It was very abstract. And so um, something that I did with a couple of other undergrads was fly to Norway and make, like, an intro video um, for this particle physics opera. That was sort of explaining some of those elementary particles and trying to give the audience a sense of what all of this actually meant before they went into the, Mm. like, abstract opera.
0: Very (laughs) cool.
1: Yeah, it was a really cool experience. Uh, it was like, they just flew us out to Norway. We participated in this conference, made this video. Uh, and so I wanted to play just a short clip from that video.
3: All of the big things in the world are made up of smaller
1: things. So let's say we have a sand castle. Sand Sandcastles are made of grains of sand, which have mass, meaning that you can pick them up and hold them. If you zoom in really close on a single grain of sand then you'll find that it's made up of atoms. Atoms are the building blocks of all matter and there are a lot of different types of atoms which can be organized into the periodic table of elements. Atoms are the basic elements that make up everything that we see around us but they're actually made up of even smaller particles.
0: Atoms are made of neutral particles, neutrons, positively charged (laughs)
1: particles. So what was really cool about this is we also like composed all the music and everything That's and so it's... fun <laughs> so it's, it's actually a video so we can link it um in our show notes but this is just a little bit of audio from it it was super fun it was a really cute little video that we made yeah that was what my a wonderful
0: experience and what year yeah. did you do that
1: uh i did that the summer between my junior and senior years Very so 2016 cool. okay yeah Not that long ago.
0: That's that's really cool.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I've sort of learned to not say no in general to opportunities. And I see like every email as an opportunity. And I feel like I've had a lot of weird experiences like this, but like really (laughs) cool experiences too. (laughs) It was a great story. Going to Norway was an experience.
0: (laughs) That's great advice though. Don't say no to an opportunity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I like that idea a lot. Yeah. So Will, do you want to tell us about your first research experience?
0: Absolutely. I got started, like you, Alex, in high school. And in my school, I went to public school that had a really wonderful science research curriculum. And very similar to what you described, you had to find a research mentor and do a project over a series of summers, mostly. And then, you know, that culminated in presenting at science fairs and and other sorts of competitions like that. And I had really been interested in physics since I was very little. Um, my dad had introduced me to physics, and that's a whole other story. But when I came into this program in 10th grade, it was a three-year program, I knew from the get-go I wanted to do something in the physics realm. And I really didn't know where to start with that. So I spent most of 10th grade reading random physics papers on you know whatever uh, websites I could find that we had access to. And after you know getting toward the, the end of the year... I sat down with the physics teacher in the high school and the teacher for the class, We were different people. And, uh, and the physics teacher said, "Well, you might want to look into astronomy. It's really cool, it's very exciting, and you're going to have all these different opportunities that you could actually really get involved in where these physics topics are pretty impenetrable for someone in high school. And mm-hmm. I, I knew of astronomy. I was interested in astronomy, but not not at the level I had been exposed to physics through you know some some fun books and some stuff like that. And then once I started reading these astronomy papers, I was like totally taken over by that. And I had to find a mentor. And this was the really hard part. After a lot of emails, I was not really doing so well.
2: Wait, just a quick question before we move on to your advisors.
0: Had you known of Archive at that point? Or where were you finding these papers? So I think the school had a subscription to JSTOR. And I think that's how I was finding everything. Maybe I knew about Archive at some point in there, but it hadn't really occurred to me what it was.
3: Right. Um, Okay.
0: And for those listening who don't know, Archive is this great website run by Cornell that most astronomy and physics researchers just upload their papers to. It's completely open source, and it's kind of rare. No other field does anything like this. You can just get all the papers for free at any time you want. If you hit a paywall looking for uh, an article in a journal, then it's probably for free
2: on Archive.
0: Yeah, it's the best resource. So I had to find a mentor by the end of sophomore year of high school, by the end of the summer – after that year. Otherwise, I was out of the program. That was it. They couldn't help me. And I went into the summer with nothing. And I was set up to do a physics summer program at the University of Pennsylvania. And it was an exciting program to just learn about some physics stuff. And there was astronomy in there. Um, And I knew like, okay, if I didn't leave there with a mentor for my research, I I was out of this program. And in a total long shot, Doing a kind of a, a week long project as part of that program with a radio astronomer, professor at Penn, I kind of just approached him. I was like, "Are you willing to mentor me for this? Uh, I would really like to work with you." And he said
1: yes. I was so shocked. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, especially on the first try. That's amazing. Well,
0: it was the first try asking him, but it was about the fifteenth try asking someone. Um, oh, most, yeah. of, you know, most emails fell on deaf ears. Uh, I had mm-hmm. met a few other professors. Uh, a few at Columbia, and uh, spoken to a few others on the phone that didn't go anywhere. Uh, this was hard, and I think in biology, it was much more common. But I was the first person to do a project in physics or astronomy in my school ever. It just it was just, just not heard of. So the resources at the school didn't exist. Like, Alex, what you had with that great connection at NASA, they had nothing like that to help me mm. out. Um, and that, that made this hard. But the professor I ended up working with is James Aguirre at Penn, and um, we've maintained a nice connection. It's, it's been really wonderful getting to know him. So that's that was a really great thing for me. So I ended up spending the, the following summer, that is before my senior year of high school, mostly at Penn and a few trips here and there back and forth to, to do this research. And the project was using the radio telescope that he had built and deployed with a team in, in South Africa to detect supernova remnants that are in the Milky Way.
1: Wow. You guys totally switched. That's so so cool. I mean, I guess you don't study exoplanets, but still.
0: I study planets, so it's...
2: Yeah. yeah, (laughs) In some future episode, we should do each other's part. Oh my God. (laughs) To see how we do. Somebody's somebody's
1: got to take particle physics now.
2: Oh yeah, geez. Don't give that one to me.
1: (laughs) Definitely not me. Hardly know what a muon is.
0: (laughs) This was a, a kind of a crazy project that I was handed, and I, I actually had a chance to sit down with Professor Geary not that long ago um, and have a nice lunch together, which was really fun. And you know he kind of t- told me point blank, he's like, I kind of just handed you this project with no clue of what was going to happen. And we kind of made it work, and it was really amazing, but it was totally open-ended. It was not a planned, structured project. Um, and, and learning how to use a radio telescope was not something that I had really been told or really knew anything about and even the ideas behind it were very opaque but the idea was that there are fewer supernova remnants in the galaxy than you'd expect from star formation and evolution and a lot of what my work entailed was detecting things in these images using some rudimentary python code that he helped me write and exposed me to python which was wonderful but um, in the in the beginning it was really just just categorizing things like what did i detect did that align with something on a better survey in a different wavelength? And then I got to write up a manuscript and and use that as part of the the competitions, the the science fairs or whatnot. And this is a funny thing. I was reading this again for the first time since I published it. Well, it wasn't it wasn't published in a journal. It was published by the class. But for the first time since then, I I read it, and it's so funny. I. Remember what I did is I would read literature and, you know, in all the papers, I would identify things that I thought were really smart, like the way they wrote things really smart. And one of those things that I thought was the coolest was using lowercase Roman numerals as an in-text list of items. So I did that in my manuscript. I thought it having sub-subsections was just so cool. So I added a sub-subsection where it wasn't necessary. And that, that, that that was a fun experience to do that. I
2: was just going to say, it's interesting that, sorry, did you say you started learning programming with Python? That's right. As in, that was the first language you learned. That's so interesting, because to be honest, I never really started programming in Python until I got to grad school. Really? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. My undergrad, and even in high school, people used Mathematica and IDL and MATLAB. and.
1: Wow. I also pretty much just, well, I used a little bit of IDL, but I mostly... I started with Python, and I had a class assignment at one point that required Mathematica, and I tried to do it in Python, and it didn't work at all, so I just turned it in instead of trying to learn Mathematica. <laughs> yeah. like, nah. <laughs> I've, I've loved working in Python.
0: I'm so grateful mm-hmm. that Professor Aguirre exposed me to that when I was young because I've just kept developing it, and I learned Python in like the classic way, which is you just get handed some code, and you figure it out as you go. So few people really get educated in it. And it's, it's very forgiving of a language. So, you know, when I code now, I have, you know, a tab open and I'm just Googling everything. I mean, the reality is I'm just not a proficient coder, but I don't need to be because Python is such a great language being open source and whatnot. So um, I'm a big fan of that.
2: Even still, quote unquote, becoming a, or being a proficient coder just means having a tab open with Stack Overflow with yeah, right. the questions yeah. that you want to answer. <laughs>
1: yep, yep. I feel like all you really need to be or all you really need to know to be a really proficient coder in astronomy terms is like know every function in NumPy. If you knew that, then (laughs) you would be like the ideal coder (laughs) (laughs) and SciPy, I guess. But like, that's all that I ever look up. is just like, what do I actually need as the terms that go into this NumPy function? Because I don't remember anymore. Yeah.
0: Well, at the, at the end of this research project, um, in my senior year of high school, I had found what I thought might have been a few candidates supernova remnants, but we ended up, you know, misinterpreting some of the sources we had read. And it turns out, I think what I found mostly thermal H2 regions, and, and that's because I was using Spitzer to do the infrared uh, sources and and they were lighting up. So I think that's what ended up happening. But it was really cool for me to be exposed to this. And then presenting at science fairs was such a great experience.
1: Were those known H2 regions or like was this anything that was sort of also a discovery in a different way?
0: I don't really know. Um, I didn't realize that they were H2 regions and we had made a mistake until after kind of all of this had settled and really until I came into college and, and started reapproaching this a little bit. Um, at that point, we, we kind of look back at it and realize we made a mistake. but um, so and, and then it, it, I didn't really pursue it much after that. So I, I went to Penn undergrad, so I continued working with Professor Geary freshman year and and then I kind of lost interest in the project. It wasn't really going anywhere it was time for me to make a change and, and I did at, at the end of that year.
2: I just want to make the point that I think it's uh, quite um, smart of you to have changed direction if you thought the project wasn't going anywhere. I think that's something that I've struggled with in the past and that everybody who wants to continue on in research long-term has to figure out is when, at what point do you realize that a project is worth continuing or worth abandoning and pursuing
0: something else? It's a really hard question. And I'll tell you, this was not the last time I had to abandon a project. Hmm. And that's, that's another thing I'd I'd be happy to share in a future beyond episode, but yeah, it's, it's hard and discouraging. And after, you know, after working on this for so many years to kind of not, let it become anything felt, you know, so sad. But at the, t- at the same time, I learned these valuable skills. I got exposed to a field. Um, I made connections. I got to present at science fairs and really enjoyed this, this act of presenting my research, something I became good at and really excited about, which brings me to my audio clip.
3: Hi, and welcome back. I'm Lisa Wexler. Good morning, and you're listening to the Accorda Scientific Excellence Award, where every week we get to chat with and award a special award to one of our outstanding Westchester High School students who is studying in independent research in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And today's winner is William Saunders of Blind Brook High School. He is a senior, and his project was entitled The Search for Galactic Supernovas. Or was it Supernova Remnants, Well
0: Supernova Remnants. Supernova
3: remnant, but it just went off the thing. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it was an SNR. Yes. And what we were learning before was basically you are the Lewis and Clark. You are the cartographer of the skies, and you have discovered something in the skies that never existed before to our knowledge, right?
0: Well, it has existed, but it hasn't that been That we marred. know about. Well, right. that's
3: like a map. I mean, things exist, but, you know, es-
0: we didn't know where the
3: river was, but it was always there, that kind of thing.
0: Right, and I, I have, you know, looked at a lot of different maps in order to make sure that it appears in a lot of different places, that it's not just a fluke of one map. And it certainly does exist across multiple days, across multiple maps, and even across multiple frequencies. And
3: Looking what are we going to name the supernova remnant?
0: Well, I'd like to call it <laughs> WSNR. But okay,
3: well, can we do that? I think I, you can buy a star I think that's name enough. for 10 bucks
0: and put it um, th- th- This <laughs> is a 30-minute long interview. I can find so much gold in here.
1: <laughs> it's amazing. It sounds like a young version of you. Like, you, yeah. can, you can tell. Well, it's really cool. Well, you were cool.
0: meant to be a podcaster.
1: <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> your voice was made for this.
0: <laughs> so if you can't tell, that was me on the radio, senior year of high school, on a local AM radio station. This interview was so cool. I absolutely loved it.
2: I loved that as a, as a high schooler, you continued to correct her. I just thought that part was so funny because <laughs> she was like, so really, this thing happened. And you, in, in your, like, young high school voice, you're like, well, not,
1: not quite. It was actually a little different. <laughs> like, actually, science is a very nuanced voice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh man. Well, I will link to the full interview if anyone wants to hear it. It is up for all to hear. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I just I just really enjoyed it. I had a really fun time. I left there so energized, like how I feel when we get off from recording. Honestly, I'm so amped up. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And we didn't we didn't talk about
2: it earlier, but you were using Spitzer data, right? I so was. Another shout yes. out
0: to yeah. the one and only Spitzer Space Telescope. <laughs> So there you have it. That was my first research experience. Thanks for sharing the audio. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. And so that brings us toward the end of the episode here, but not quite over. Now, despite the fact that we are going to produce our longest episode yet, we shall keep going. I think I speak for all of us when I say that we're so grateful to have had these opportunities to explore research at a young age. We had mentors and advisors that made it happen for us, but it, it wasn't easy. I mean, for me, finding that mentor was hard. And I think both of you had to experience you know, some level of uncertainty before you got to a point of doing that research project.
2: And even in the research project.
1: <laughs> right.
0: And it doesn't end there, right? You experience that your whole life in research and you just become more accustomed to it as you get older and more experienced. But we wanted to point our listeners to some useful resources on the Astrobytes page that has some great advice for getting started in research for undergrads we think it's even relevant for high school students and early grad students to figure out how to get started
1: right so specifically there's this really great astrobite from 2013 that we'll have linked in the show notes that is called getting started in undergraduate research by josh fuse and um, it's Again, it's pretty old, but it's actually all perfectly relevant. I don't think there's anything in there that I still don't think is relevant today. And it's got some really great advice in it.
0: I agree. I don't think we have time to go through every point in this astrobyte, but I think we each have some experience from our first research projects that overlap with this advice. So Alex, do you want to share something in this astrobyte that resonated with you? Sure.
2: So it seemed to me like the... Astrobyte was specifically focused on REU's, Research Experiences for Undergraduates, which is a National Science Foundation uh, program where you can get funded to go do research at an institution other than your own, potentially even in another country. And so I went to Virginia Tech for undergrad and did not major in astronomy. And Virginia Tech also doesn't have the largest program for... Uh, astrophysics research. It doesn't even have a major in astrophysics or astronomy. And so in my case, REUs were really a godsend, were incredibly useful to continue to dig into astrophysics and ensure that I was ready for grad school when it came. So I would recommend from this astrobyte, dig online for research opportunities as an undergraduate, such as REUs, but other research experiences exist as well, especially if your home institution doesn't have an astronomy presence, because it can really make the difference when applying for grad school later on. Absolutely. Yeah. Milena, what parts of the article resonated with you?
1: Uh, Something that they pointed out in the article that I thought was really great advice and that I thought about when picking a grad school but not so much for undergrad research is that the Astrobyte discusses talking to undergrads and grad students who have more experience, so the older students who have already worked with some of these professors, and ask them about, you know, advising styles, who might be interested in taking on a student, what type of project you'd be working on, if you'd have a supportive advisor, etc., and so I think just by happenstance in general, I've had really great advising experiences, but that wasn't necessarily a given. And I know that that's not the case for everybody. So just making sure that you use that resource and just talk to people. People are generally very willing to discuss their experiences with you um, and just get a better sense of, you know, who would want to take on undergraduate students, who would be supportive and maybe even help you to publish a paper while you're still an undergrad. Um, and who really will invest time to help you to become a better researcher. I think that that's really great advice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, So, Will, did you have anything in particular that you wanted to bring up from the astrobite?
0: Yeah. I wanted to, to say that it takes a long time in research experience to come up with your own research projects from start to end. It's really hard. And in the beginning, I think it's easier to align yourself with a professor or someone else doing research in an area that interests you and let them kind of help you get started giving you some direction. Even in grad school, they say your first project is, quote, directed research. And that's how it should be because you need direction. You need a little hand-holding in the beginning. And then once you get that experience, even once you have one project under your belt, you could start to direct for yourself the next one. And I would say when you are talking to a professor or someone else directing your research, ask about expectations and deadlines up front. As you said, Milena, it's really important to learn about their advising style. Some like to be hands-off and, you know, you're going to take care of yourself. And others want a weekly progress report and want to be emailed with figures and reports and, and results every single week. Know what works for you and make sure you you have a schedule in place. And last thing I'll say is sending Emails is really hard. You're going to get a lot of rejections and a lot of non-responses, but they have to be good emails regardless. Um, you will get certainly no responses for bad emails. So do your research on this person. You know, Make sure you read uh, his or her papers and have information to put into the email that really makes it show that you're doing the extra step there.
2: Right. I, that's a great point. I think they're much more willing to invest in you if you've shown that you're willing to invest in them and are interested yes. in investing as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's
2: a great way to put it. So we mentioned before that this astrobyte is online, it's from 2013, but still contains a lot of great information. There are many more points encapsulated in it than we discuss here, so if you'd like to learn any more about it, feel free to go online. We'll also link it in the show notes. But I think we'll wrap up here. Instead of doing one-sentence summaries this time, let's each give the one-sentence advice that we would give ourselves when we started looking for research a long time ago.
0: That's a great idea.
2: Melina, do you want to start?
1: Um, yeah, so I think the the main takeaway from the research experience that I've talked about here with particle physics for me is that I think it's really useful to try out different research projects and just because you might struggle in one research position or in one project doesn't mean that you aren't going to love doing research in a different context. And so undergrad is an amazing time to explore and so trying out different projects if you have the chance I think is a really really great idea. And it's a great time to figure out what you like. Uh, Alex, what's your one sentence summary?
2: Okay, so I have three bullet points. But if you just pretend that they're a series of clauses (laughs) in the same (laughs) sentence, I think we'll be okay. My first point is work smarter, not harder. So there's already a lot out there. And it's probably not the best idea to reinvent the wheel with every single thing that you do when you're just starting out on research. So ask around Do your own digging, see what you can find. It'll probably reduce your workload quite a bit. And also, if you're wondering if you're documenting enough, you're probably not documenting enough. Write about what you're doing, write in a lab notebook, write in your code, write as much as you can because that's really going to help you down the road stay organized, especially if you're writing a paper. And finally, you will never know exactly what you're doing. And that can be scary, but that's also what makes it research
1: yeah the whole point of research is that nobody's ever done it before so that's a really good point
0: how about you will i would say something i've learned more and more recently is don't be afraid to admit ignorance it's the people that are most comfortable in their learning and researching ability that freely admit the most when they don't know something and instead of being seen as a failure it's actually shown as wisdom and, and appreciation. So people are really happy to teach you when you ask to be taught. It's, it's, a, it's a really wonderful thing. Nice. Yeah. And so with that, we will conclude Episode 12, Beyond Astro Soundbites, Our First Research Experiences. Now, please do let us know if you liked our first Beyond episode or if you have other feedback of any kind, if you want to just let us know you're listening. We appreciate all feedback, and you can send us an email at astrosoundbites at gmail.com. Now, also, you might want to reach out if you have questions about astronomy, about the things that we've talked about, corrections on things (laughs) we've gotten wrong, and any other random thing you want to share with us. If you send us a question, we'll try to answer it. If you send us an audio clip, we might actually just play it on the air. You can check out all of our episodes, as usual, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.